Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. And man, does this feel different, Aaron. I'm taking a picture. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> it feels different because we are sitting in the same room in Franklin, bizarre. Tennessee. Isn't that bizarre? It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And you drove here from Murfreesboro? And I drove a full 30 minutes to... Yeah. Actually, when I was... I got here about an hour ago to work on some other stuff, and I parked right out in front of this building, and then walked over the Mellow Mushroom, had a pretzel and a beer, Yeah. and was like, oh, it. I think there's only been about four times that I felt like, this is weird. Oh. This, this is 30 minutes from the house. This is not, hey, I just flew here from California and I'm going to Mellow Mushroom. Yeah, yeah. And I'm so optimistic that now that things are beginning to settle out for you and you're getting some more direction on what you are meant to be doing here, uh, that we're going to be able to coordinate our schedules in a way that allows us to get these podcasts back on a rhythm. It actually feels awkward right now that you're in the room with me. <laughs> I'm looking at you. I'm actually feeling like, God. You're used to sitting you know, in that is, tiny shed out there know, in Cali- was, California. It was safe. This is like you're here. We're having a conversation with each other, but in front of microphones. That's weird. Yeah. This is, we've probably only done this in the same room, what, five oh, fair to eight few. times? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, and so, yeah. On, on previous visits when yes. you've been here. Yeah. But not that many times. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. There's no, maybe, can we just, Sit back to back today, <laughs> and look at each other <laughs> like couples do in restaurants, <laughs> yes. staring at their phones. Exactly, <laughs> that'd be amazing. Uh, yes, but here we are, and you're optimistic, and yeah, I think we'll be able to make it happen. I yeah, I really do think, so. and, and high time too. I first of all, I, I miss the weekly interaction with you. Uh, that has begun. That's been so such a big part of my life for so long and now we've had this big uh period during which you've been in flux you're making the move here and just everything going down and then i've had challenges of my own and then we recorded a podcast that mysteriously all the audio disappeared yeah we need to tell the podcast listeners we have not been quite this delinquent yeah yeah but we, we had a weird thing happen that has not happened in 230 whatever episodes yeah so we're doing it again today. Yes, we are. With a guest who will arrive shortly. But for now, we are in a cool old building. Yeah, isn't this a fantastic place? This is the offices of Kiro Financial, my business managers here in Franklin. Wonderful, wonderful people. And they have given us the use of their conference room. And uh, so here we sit, sun streaming through the tall windows. And there's a dry erase board if we want to come up with any plans for this podcast. We could do that. I don't know what's written on it right now. Yeah, I don't. It's something to do with business development, it looks like. Oh, that's a Z and not a two. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at that wondering. <laughs> Look like a strange algebraic by two minus del. Yeah, no, I think it's biz dev is what it is. That would make so much more sense for the business that we're sitting in. Yeah. So you just came back from Florida. I did. Uh, Allie and I took a trip, took a week, and went down to visit our two youngest grandchildren and their parents on the lovely island, Amelia Island, north of Jacksonville in Florida. And uh, we take our time. We make it a two-day drive down and back, always spend the night in Atlanta. We got a nice surprise on the way back. Uh, Allie likes to stay at the Embassy Suites uh, on Olympic Park in downtown Atlanta. I don't know why she's partial to that hotel, but she is. So we stayed there on the way down and and checked in on the way back, and they 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 uh, they gave us a nice third floor room, street side, but nobody bothered to tell us that uh, the following morning was the Atlanta Marathon. So you were stuck. Eleven thousand runners, and they (laughs) powered up this this public address system with highly energetic announcers and hip-hop music at about six o'clock in the morning we had just woke us up out of a sound sleep a room just kind of vibrating like we were inside a drum and then we opened up the curtains to see thousands of people out there wow yeah so how hard was it to get out of the city at that point yeah yeah we had to yeah we couldn't leave in the morning we had to wait until runners were still straggling in 
when we got some, you know, a special pass from a guy to get us out. But so yeah. you were actually stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How how did they not tell you that? That seems like <laughs> got to be some rule. Wow. Well, yeah. so it took a little longer to get home. Yeah. Yeah. But but quality time with my wife and quality time with grandkids and. Well, I know Allie likes dancing to hip hop music, so she probably had a fine time. We celebrated her birthday while we were down there, so Uh, that was very nice. Uh, Meanwhile, you've spent most of your time trying to get well. Yep, and a a long sickness. Uh, You told me it was the flu, so I'm taking your word for it. Uh, Or either that or the bubonic plague. It was one of the two. Yeah, it was was bad. It was... uh, a high fever for three days, but didn't cross the 104 mark, so I didn't have to go to the hospital. Got came damn close, though, didn't it? Yeah, I was at 103.8 for three days. I just kept checking, going, if it's not 104, I'm not going to the hospital. <laughs> uh, that's, you know, yeah. emergency rooms are expensive. There's yeah. no reason to waste money. Oh, uh, and then it was looking up, like, how long are you supposed to be coughing? And, you know, yeah. Yeah. two to three weeks. So, yeah, it's, it's fine. Not the first person to get the flu, I'm sure, but my and it wife ran through also the family, got it. didn't it? Yeah. Everybody got sick except for one of my sons. Uh, the kids got better faster. Jenny was sick, still is fighting stuff. We're both still coughing. Um, the only one who didn't get get uh, get sick works at McCreary's. Yes. So I wonder if there's a connection. Probably he has been. He's allowed to sample beer even <laughs> as a. He's turning 19 this week, so as an 18 year old. It is the, well, okay, you, uh-huh. know, you have like a shot glass worth uh-huh. uh, each day you're here so that you know what things taste like, uh-huh. which is an interesting thought. I don't know. Am I allowed to say this? I don't think it's illegal. Uh, it might be. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, the part I thought was fascinating was, you know, he he really wants to understand, like, he's, he's never gotten drunk. He's never yeah, wanted right, to drink right. or anything like that. Right, right. But he really wants to properly pitch, you know, here's what this beer is. Yeah. And he made some mistakes early on that were pretty hilarious with not <laughs> knowing what certain things were and trying to fake it. And people were like, what is this? <laughs> uh, so he, he really wanted to understand. But, like, I remember when I first had beer, mm-hmm. it, it was not tasting good to me. Yeah. Like, it, you kind of have to develop that yeah palette yeah so uh you know he's he's getting kind of the broad understanding without i'm sure it's not the appreciation yet yeah sure but there it's it's probably the thing has kept him healthy okay this is one shot of uh beer four <laughs> times a week let the listeners know that is our new advice an apple a day and four shots of beer there you go. There you I, go. I feel confident nobody's getting drunk uh, on that. So uh, that, I, I think I think that's eminently safe. <laughs> so yeah, everybody else got sick, but uh, you know, sickness is boring. So we don't have to talk about that. Well, what we can talk about on this episode of the podcast is coaching. This is a this is a subject that has been coming up more and more here in Franklin, and more and more in the virtual meetings. Which, by the way, are popping and hopping. Um, you know, the question is: as we are moving down this road toward recovery, as we're taking this journey together, um, is there some seasoned, experienced expert advice that can maybe spare us some grief and speed us on our way? Um, Yes, there is an enormous benefit that's to be gained just from brotherhood, just from hanging out with other idiots that have, are just as far along as we are. But there is also, if we are humble enough to listen and desperate enough to ask for it, a great deal to be gained from the advice of others who are a little further down the road. So the good question is, where do you find a trustworthy coach? What's the value of coaching? What are the limitations of coaching? Uh, and is the co- is coaching the same as counseling or therapy? Uh, those are things that we're going to be talking about on this episode of the podcast. I wish we could get like an athlete or somebody in here that 
you know, coaching meant something different but similar. I, I don't know. Let's let's take a quick break and see if we can dig one up. All right, great idea. Hang with us. We'll be back in a moment here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. <laughs> podcast and how fortunate we are that uh, a a guy who looks for all the world like a professional athlete because he is a former professional athlete uh, managed to just happen to walk in the door. That's so Random. weird. It's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Sladen, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. And, uh, and I ask you specifically to come and talk about coaching because I know you have a lot of experience in uh, the world of competitive sports and now in the world of recovery around coaching you've benefited from coaching in a couple of worlds yeah benefited from co i've been the coachee not the coach for the <laughs> most part and thank you for having me by the way oh yeah uh yeah i'm just so grateful for you coming in now uh so you uh let's let's uh, i i i want our folks to get to know you a little bit uh, were you, as a kid, always marked out as an athlete? Not until I was about 13 or 14 years old. Really? I always loved sports. I always loved anything to do with, with a diamond where you can hit an object or like kickball. You uh -huh. know, I was always good at that. If there was a fence out there, something you can see how far you can you can hit or kick an object and then run around the bases, I was pretty good at that. Yeah, rob, yeah, yeah. rob a jewelry store. Just anything with diamonds. Well, yeah. I loved it. I never thought about that. And fences, yes. <laughs> yeah. Fences. Absolutely. Yeah, security. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I mean... It, Actually, when I was 12 and 13 years old, I still wasn't getting picked for the All-Star. I love baseball. Mm -hmm. I wasn't getting picked for the All-Star teams, things like that. Or if I did get picked, I would be kind of the backup kid on the bench. And, really? Yeah, and that really it really bothered me because my dad was an athlete, and he was, even by 12 or 13 years old, I was the kind of kid I wanted so badly to be this great baseball player that I was telling my dad, hey, push me, mm -hmm. make me better. Because, you know, at that point, he still knew a lot more than me. Yeah. So yeah. I knew I could go to him with that. And I knew if there's one thing that is going to separate me from these other kids who are, who are more athletic than me right now, mm -hmm. it's the fact that I really want it, I think, a lot more than them. Yeah. So I was that, that weird kid that was 12, 13 years old doing push-ups every morning and asking my dad to be hard on me. Really? <laughs> and I regretted that later. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I was that guy. So that, that was a separating factor. And then uh, at 14 and 15 years old, you know, things clicked with puberty and all that. Yeah, yeah. I grew a little bit. Uh, you know, what I did in a weight room started to actually matter. Uh -huh. and, and then my hand-eye coordination all of a sudden improved and things changed. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, at that point, 15, 16 years old, people started taking me a little more serious. And then 16, 17, colleges were taking me serious. And 1819 we got pro scouts coming to games so right right it was, right, it, was right. it was it was a very very fun exciting ride to go from the kid that nobody was paying any attention to uh -huh. to somebody that a lot of people were paying attention to yeah 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 now, as an aside before you go on with the story and far be it for me to tell a guest what to do sure <laughs> but if you tap on the table i don't have my headphones on ah. but i imagine it will be heard through the microphones, but you can tap on your chair as much as you'd like. Okay, that'll be and, my nervous and, tick then down keep, here. Keep being animated. It's great. Keep, keep it below the table. Keep it below. Uh, yeah, Don't right, go anywhere yeah. with that. I'm, I'm not. I didn't I know, say anything. I know we're in a Samson group here, but we, don't, we just don't need to go there. 
So uh, did you have any uh, key, so would you say your dad was your first coach? I really would, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, obviously I had high school coaches, middle school coaches and all that, but my dad was a, a pretty, if he listens to this, he was a pretty good baseball player. Uh-huh. Um, he was kind of that, I, I think of him as a guy that worked really hard, wanted it really bad, had a lot of personal determination and drive. And, and but you know he didn't have a lot of coaching. He he would tell you about his baseball career. He didn't have people giving him great advice about the sport and the game. Uh-huh. So as far as he could take it was, um, you know, like a two year junior college kind of baseball. Sure. He did great there, but yeah. then it was over. Yeah. And with him, um, you know, he blew out his shoulder because he didn't have a coach there saying, "Hey, man." You don't have to throw it as hard as you can every single throw. Uh-huh. That's not what this game's about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So coaching might have helped him back then too. Okay, okay. But like they say, you know, a lot of songs about this. But you know, where his dreams sort of died, they picked up with his son. Uh-huh. So, so I bore that weight for a while, for the good and for the bad. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. But I love that you asked for it at at some point. I did. Yeah. So yeah. was that after he had let go of? living vicariously through you and no that was when it started that was when it started okay (laughs) i think he he, you know any dad whose sons show you know a a uh what's the word aptitude there we go an aptitude for for sports um they're going to want their kid to to want it and to be good at it and i was beginning to show an aptitude and ask for it and i think that's when it kicked in and a lot of that was really healthy yeah Yeah. um you know i feel like he gave me a he was here's one great thing to say he was the first person to really believe in me and every Mm. kid needs that from their father wow Um, so yes he he was my first coach and my first believer and without him i mean things would have looked completely different completely well you get that as a father but also from the coaching aspect, I think coaches are very paternal in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And we need them to believe in us as much as, you know, uh, uh, anybody else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you can really tell, especially at the higher, well, at, at any level, but, you know, as you go further in a game like baseball, you can sort of differentiate the coaches who are there for their and everybody's there to some degree for, for their own reasons and their own uh, ability to climb whatever ladder they're climbing, whether it's a college coach, professional coach, whatever. But as a player, you can really tell the difference in the ones that, that have a care in their heart for the players versus the ones that are just uh, saying what they need to say to try mm-hmm. to win more games. And it's all about moving to the next level. Mm-hmm. So you wound up uh, on scholarship, I would imagine. In college, playing baseball? I did. I got a full ride to Georgia Tech. And um, and you guys went to the we went, we went College to, World Series. My freshman year. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. It was the year that um, we were not really ranked that highly because we were such a young team. Yeah. I think that year we had 13 freshmen on a 40-man roster. And two of the freshmen, myself and a, a, a shortstop, uh, Eric Patterson was his name, great player. Yeah. Uh, we both beat out the, the seniors or the juniors that were ahead of us and ended up playing the full season and going to the College World Series and kind of surprising everybody that year, which it was a lot of fun. It was a lot to handle uh, for an 18-year-old kid turning 19 from Murfreesboro. Um, and you were setting records at the plate. I was, uh, and, and, I, and I was doing it kind of without knowing I was doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes when you're, when you're too – you're too dumb to know that you're as how successful you're being. Yeah, right, right. Because that year I hit 18 home runs and batted 350 as a freshman. Well, guess what I did the next year? <laughs> yeah. I set far higher goals that were nearly unachievable. Right. And the moment I started slumping, I stayed in a year-long slump. Yeah, so yeah. So that was that was pretty difficult, and that was my first real brush with failure. Yeah. And it was also the first time I realized, as as a Christian, that maybe I've got an idol in front of God here because I hated my life Uh when things weren't going well Mm. on the field I hated my whole world I I legitimately wanted to die at times after bad games and Uh that's not a good way to live sure what what was happening there just your identity was so wrapped up in having to succeed that you didn't know who you were completely wrapped up in it and even though I saw myself as sort of Mr. Campus Christian and I'm involved with FCA and I've got a you know I'm not really in the social you know, group, the popular group on the team because I'm a Christian. I, I, I kind of put myself in this Pharisee role where I was judging others. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, but, but my way to justify that was, but I'm playing so well 
mm-hmm. I must be, you know, in, in, in the right place. I must be doing what God is wanting me to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the moment that that went south, that whole paradigm didn't work anymore. Wow. Well, it still works, but you have to play it out to... My karma Christianity told me my good works gave me good results. Therefore, God must be displeased with something. It, exactly. And I, w- I went through that for a, for a good year. And there were plenty of things, hence why I'm in Samson, that I, <laughs> that I thought the Lord was probably displeased with. And yeah. as hard as I try, I couldn't get over it. And, um, and th- that also began, I would say, middle of college um, as, a, as a young Christian guy knowing, hey, I've got a real issue with pornography. And I may not be going out and partying at night and taking girls back, but I'm sure looking at plenty, plenty of naked women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and man, uh, that was a tough place to be because I felt like a hypocrite. And then when you're not performing in, in your day job, for lack of a better way to say it at that time, it's kind of like your whole world's falling apart. I'm a hypocrite as a Christian. Um, I'm not performing in the way that the world uh, usually, you know, used to applaud me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really don't like myself. And when you're, when you're in that place, yeah. you, it's, it's kind of a good place to be because it makes you begin to question everything for the first time rather than just accepting, you know, based on the way you were raised. Yeah. yeah. Now we're talking about coaching, but I would love to hear your comments on that because I think there were a lot of times during your years of active addiction where you were still being Saint Nate Oh, you're talking to me now. Working, yeah, with, yeah. working with the school, being on the school board. Sure. And so what was the, if X amount of things are going well, yes. if I'm succeeding, then I can marginalize this part of my life. Sure. Yeah. If I'm failing across the board, I don't have anywhere to put that. But I mean, that's, I mean, that's just, I say it out loud. It sounds ridiculous, but mm-hmm. I know I've done it. Mm-hmm. So what was that for you that like, okay, as long as these things are working, I don't have to really face this. Sure, if, uh, like during my years as a, as a pastor and an active sex addict, if I could preach a good sermon or if I felt as though I actually helped a family or a couple, I gave some wise counsel or I was a comfortable <clears throat> presence in a funeral and felt like I was doing my job well, uh, that took a little bit of the sting out of uh, the pain of my secret life, mm-hmm. this knowledge that I carried around, this hypocrisy that I so hated but couldn't end um, yeah but you know when I preached a turd which you know <laughs> and that happens oh man I just want to crawl in a hole and pull it in after me yeah. right yeah life was awful so how do you guys with what you both just said mm-hmm. reconcile the person of Jonah who was a complete racist asshole. Right. There is nothing redemptive in his story about his personality. Uh-huh. He does all bad start to finish, yeah. I think. I, yeah, I can't think of anything redemptive. Uh, yeah, he goes to Nineveh yeah. and preaches, but he's pretty much forced to. Yeah. His batting average is a thousand. <laughs> I mean, the best revival ever of a horrible city. Yeah. And yet none of it was based on his performance before or after. Yeah. So how, when we get stuck in this cycle of I'm attaching, if I have enough success, Mm -hmm. but I still have these sins, somehow I believe God's okay. But then here we have a person that clearly God is going to do amazing, gracious stuff through ridiculous people because Jonah's ridiculous. And if you named your children Jonah, that's your name. It's okay. Uh, You are a lesson (laughs) of grace. You know, I think that this all comes down to one of those foundational principles that's so difficult to accept. But the truth is, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about Jeremy. It's not about Aaron. And God will use who he's going to use, and he will accomplish his purposes. And uh, I'll tell you what, I have made myself far more important in my own mind. Hmm. I've made my successes more important than they are, and my failures more important than they are. So how have you guys come out of karma Christianity where it's all based on I did this so God was pleased and gave me this. Oh, I failed at this. So, because yeah. what you just described is that struggle when you were younger. Yeah, I think well the, the the verse that comes to mind is His grace is made perfect in my weakness, and yeah. that's something where after a failure, after a trip up, man, that's that's the first place I go to. 
is, you know, I'm not striving for weakness, but I have weaknesses. And it's in those times where God can truly show up because I know it's not about my performance at that point. I've already screwed up. The one thing I I would add to your, your thoughts on Jonah is Jonah still, as much as he deliberated and didn't want to go, he still went. Mm-hmm. He still showed up, and I think that's a big part of what what we have to do. I mean, he, you still have to go. Um, Nate was talking about, you know, when he really preached a great sermon or, or helped a family. I think that's one of the beautiful things about our Lord is he still allows his good works to be done through us, even if we're in a bad place. Boy, just you saying that verse, what is it again? Your grace makes tolerance for my weakness. No, I, I, I probably got it wrong. I, but it's made perfect. Yeah, his yeah. grace is made perfect in our weakness. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's, Are you making fun of me because I got it no, wrong? No, I'm, I'm, I'm making fun of me and yeah. anybody else who thinks that grace lets God tolerate us. Yeah. Not that his grace becomes perfect, most beautiful, the most powerful thing yeah. in the weakness, not yeah. in... God is is not most limited by the stuff we're we're really good at, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or that we're really bad at. It it is most limited by the stuff I think I'm really good at. Yeah. I notice, you know, for me, speaking, public speaking, which my dad is really good at. I struggle with it. I get nervous. I get anxious. I start to try to control my words. I start to try to think what I want to say before I say it. Mm. In those times, I'm trying to take whatever strengths I have and really grasp onto them tightly in order to get it out there in the best way that Jeremy knows how to say it. Mm. And it's in those times where I'm limited by my own best efforts. It's those times where I lay that all aside. And I, it's, it's kind of like one of those things that brings tears to your eyes to think about. It's, it's when I don't care. When I don't care how good I, I could be at something, mm-hmm. I don't care about the way it's going to be viewed. All I care about is the words that the Lord wants to say being said through me, and I just need to be open to that. Hmm. Wow. Let's go back to coaching. Okay. Um, well, I, I'm curious how, I mean, you ended the story at a, a year of slump, yeah. which, mm-hmm. which that word is such a scary word. because. Yeah. It's not I had a bad game. It's my head. I mean, that's a totally mental thing. Yeah, right? and, it, and it only got worse from there. But um, you still made it to professional baseball, which tells me that you must have had some help pulling out of the slump. I did. And it, it that, that help, I'm so glad you brought that up, Nate. It goes exactly in line with what we're talking about. A very unlikely source, the, source, the pitching coach, came okay. to me. Okay, uh-huh. and you were not a pitcher. Just I was for not the, a pitcher. Uh, I was I was an outfielder. I was I was a hitter. I mean, I was known as an offensive bat in the lineup. Um, so freshman year was awesome. Sophomore year slumped the entire year, but played every game. Junior year, I'm coming back with a vengeance. I'm Mister Doing Everything Right. I'm running around campus and doing push-ups in the morning and watching video after every practice. Well, we're, we're, we've gone through fall practice, and I'm still slumping. I still don't feel like my old self. I, it's almost like, have I lost it? Mm-hmm. You know, is the magic gone? <laughs> um, we're now a few games away from the seat, or a few practices away from the season starting, and I'm in the video room just r- breaking down my freshman year video against my, my practice video from the day before and trying to figure out what's changed. And really not a lot of change, maybe something here or there. The pitching coach comes in. And he just kind of smiles. And this is a really jovial, happy-go-lucky kind of guy. Always brings a breath of fresh air into the room. And it's just me and him alone. And he goes, you know what, Jeremy? I just got to tell you something, man. You're just not that big of a deal. Oh, do you know that? And he smiled. And he said, you're just not that big of a deal, man. And he's like, come on, give, give me a hug. <laughs> he's one of those guys. Get up and give me a hug. And, I, and you know, I'm, I'm probably 20 years old at the time. And when he, when he first said it, I never really had somebody say that to me. Yeah. Uh, since then, a lot of people have said it to me. Uh, but he was the first to say it, and it stunned me. And at first, it was uh, a little bit of anger and, and, and annoyance. Like, who's he to tell me I'm not a big deal? And then I, I kind of started to receive it. And it's like, you know what? Ultimately, whether, whether I go out this year and, and slump again or don't or whatever, this is not life or death. There's yeah. people that love me. There's a God above that loves me. It kind of brought into view a lot of things that I, I needed to hear in a very succinct way. Yeah. And uh, guess what happened that year? I got injured really badly, and I missed my entire junior year, which is the year you're eligible for the draft out of college. Mm-hmm. So that was a year where I hit rock bottom in terms of I was, I was projected to be a first or second round draft pick my freshman year. 
my sophomore year, I slumped and I hurt that stock. Then I missed my junior year due to a back injury and a shoulder injury. One, I had two surgeries. Wow. I was now no longer on the radar. And the pain in my back was so great. Now, not only did I miss the season, I went home back to Murfreesboro and stayed with mom and dad. It was that bad. Wow. I had to ask permission of my you know, ACC coach, can I leave and not travel with the team anymore? I'm, and he, he, under, he knew it was that bad. And uh, so I go home, and that was a period of deep soul-searching. And I remember getting to the point where I just prayed, God, I don't care if I ever play this game again. I just want to not hurt. But if you allow me to play it again, I'll play it for the right reasons, and I'll actually enjoy it. <laughs> I'll enjoy it for the blessing of just being able to do it. And God gave me that gift. Um, I, I was slowly able to get better, feel better. The pain was relieved. And I came back for a redshirt junior year, or you might say a senior year. And I just really enjoyed the game. And not only that, by at the halfway point in that season, I was uh, I was named the I think it was the AC no the national player of the month for May wow. I believe it was national so all colleges all divisions um, I was batting probably 450 I had 12 home runs so I was on pace to obliterate what I did my freshman year. Then I got a little bit injured again. I missed a month. And, you know, push came to shove. I, I had a decent draft. I got drafted in the eighth round by the Phillies. But I, I learned how to play for the, the, for the same reasons you play backyard baseball when you're eight years old, when it's just mm-hmm. wiffle ball with your friends. That was how I was playing now at a high level of college baseball and just enjoying it. I was able to uh, walk away after a game where I go 0 for 4 and go have some fun with my friends and, and then go out tomorrow and get them next time. You can only have that kind of fun if your identity isn't on the line, if you don't think you're that important. Damn right. Wow. Yeah. And uh, there, there is so much here that applies to recovery. It blows my mind. Because I, here's what I do know about recovery. <clears throat> Relapse, or let's call it a slump, is inevitable. Everybody uh, has down times. And if my, I, if my value, my identity is all wrapped up on batting a thousand in recovery and never messing up, right. that first slip is going to take, take me out. Now I'm going to panic and I'm going to start working harder than I need to work and actually injure my... I, I remember uh, one of the old timers, when I first got in recovery, started going to SA. SA wasn't that old then. This was 20 years ago. And the guy with the most recovery in the room had 17 years of sobriety, which seemed like an absolute eternity, <laughs> yeah. right? Still does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I remember that guy looking around at the rest of us guys in the room, and he, sa- and he said, you got to wear recovery like a loose jacket. Mm. You guys are all strapped up in straight jackets. It's a loose jacket. <laughs> and the image was just so powerful for me. And... Yeah. and even though I didn't, I still didn't fully understand what he was saying, it really does resonate with me today. Yeah, I, and you don't want to minimize the length of sobriety or abstinence. Like, that's great. Yeah. But it really is the record. I mean, baseball above all sports, people track numbers. Yeah. And it's probably because games are just so stinking long. What else do you <laughs> have to do but count numbers? Uh, that... I see people yeah. where their identity starts to get wrapped up in how long have I not yeah. messed up. Yeah. And the the tighter you start to hold on to something, it, it's not going to flow. It doesn't work right. It yeah. becomes all about not messing up and what kind of life is that. Yeah. Right. And the whole point of recovery was you wanted to get back to good life. The like this has become living. bad. Yeah. This, so, yeah, it's ah, that's great. Wear it loose. Um, yeah, I have enjoyed watching you in recovery, Jeremy. Uh, and one of the things I love is that uh, you seek out coaching. I mean, you sought me out. You followed me around the block yeah. one day when you recognized <laughs> me in a coffee shop. That's right. And I, you kind of got the idea, here's a guy who knows something. Maybe he can help me. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, after a lot of years, and we're, we're skipping a lot of the story here, which is fine. After yeah. a lot of the years in pro baseball, I, I never fully got a – a grip on on recovery and you talk about being on the road in the minor leagues is not a great place oh yeah um, it, it's a place where 
uh, sobriety goes to die (laughs) (laughs) a lot of times. Um, And also, I was very susceptible to it. Uh, We've got a family history of sexual addiction Mm -hmm. um, going back several generations. Right, right. Um, so by the time I got out of baseball, that's a, that's an upheaval in life. And anytime, uh, there's a big life change and there's a lot of, uh, I guess, disorientation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a place where it can go one of two ways. It can either be a great spot for a new start or it can go down a very dark path. Right. And for me, a lot of my identity was still wrapped up in, in baseball, even after it ended. Yeah. So I go down to Atlanta. I'm doing the job I'm doing now in sales, which is it's competitive. There's a lot of travel. In a way, it sort of still felt like minor league baseball because I went to college in Atlanta. A lot of my old baseball buddies were there. Mm-hmm. We'd go hang out on the weekends. All that stuff's still going on. Yeah. But my, I wouldn't say that I was going deeper into addiction at that point. Mm-hmm. I was just kind of holding a steady pattern of addiction. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was only... and I hate to say this, but into my marriage that I went deeper into addiction because I was going through a move to Tennessee Yeah, and my life is in upheaval again. Uh, There was a lot of changes happening. Um, I'm going from a single guy that always saw myself as this carefree baseball player who was also a Christian to, Mm -hmm. man, I feel very uh, locked up and controlled. Like life is in a straight jacket now. And Mm -hmm. um, I had bought into the very uh, Americanized sitcom idea of what marriage feels like. Mm-hmm. And that's not a, that's not a very fun thing. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, on the one hand, I looked at Christians in marriage as kind of boring and strict. Yeah. And on the other hand, I saw the world in marriage as why the hell do you do this? Well, I guess you do it because everybody else does. Mm-hmm. There wasn't really, I mean, my parents sort of had a version of health, but I'd also seen a lot of addiction in that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, not to get off on that. As a matter of fact, I want to get back to the point. What, what was it you actually asked me? Um, how, have you, how has uh, coaching and your respect for coaching, your value yes, of coaching, yes. benefited you in your recovery? Right. Okay. So I saw you in the coffee shop. I recognized you from an I Am Second video, mm-hmm. and I, I knew I was in a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. We had just moved here. I had gone to some depths in my addiction that I never thought I would go, yeah. especially in marriage. Um, so when I saw you, I just, it was like, the, actually I was meeting with someone there at mm-hmm. the coffee shop to kind of talk about accountability. Yeah. That day. yeah. Uh, but he wasn't someone that deals with this area. Yeah. Um, when I saw you and mentioned who you were to him, he's like, man, you need to go talk to him. Mm-hmm. So I chased you around the block and that started uh, a path toward me getting involved in Samson, which led to a path of me getting a Silas, Tom, yeah. who I greatly respect. And, and we talk. I would love to say daily, but weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew as well as I'd heard from several of, of accountability partners, Silas's and sponsors, you, kinda, you need a counselor. You need professional uh, help. They, they didn't say professional help, but they said it would be good to have someone that has professional experience to speak into your life yeah. over a period of time. So I... I went to a few different counselors and finally landed on one when the time was right um, for me to really go deep with, share all of my secrets, uncover every stone. And and in that place, there is a a confidentiality agreement. I mean, it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go outside of that office. And getting that off my chest with another person was Mm -hmm. a big deal for me. It was a big part of my recovery. Um, It's a big deal what you just said, though, that it took, it it wasn't that you found just because you made yourself available for coaching in your life, to mm-hmm. have somebody analyze your swing and tell you what needs to change. You said it took a number of times. It did. Just you being available wasn't the fix. That was the beginning of the work to find, okay, how's, yeah. who's the right person? My, my dad has an old saying. He claims it is his own. It's probably like an old Buddhist proverb or something. But it's, <laughs> it's when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Right. It, who, who is that from? I don't know. Do we know? Is that an old proverb? I I know it ain't your dad. I think Gary came up with it. (laughs) Jeremy, I've got a saying for you. (laughs) Anyway, um, so yeah, I I think there's a certain level that I was, when I I first went to SA in Atlanta, um, I was ready for that step and I was ready for a sponsor, but I probably wasn't ready for professional counseling or a therapy environment. Right. Um, But as I noticed, hey, I need more help. Yeah. I, I'm ready for this. I'm afraid of what I'm capable of now. Yeah. I've seen myself do things I never thought I would do. Um, 
man, I'm ready for counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that speaks to what you were saying, but the first uh, the first counselor I ever had was in Atlanta, and I didn't stay with him because I moved. Mm-hmm. When I came here, there was a counselor I had for probably 10 sessions that was helpful, but we, we didn't totally connect, nor was I totally ready to go the yeah. direction that we were about to have to walk down, which was disclosure. Um, in terms of disclosure, I don't think every counselor is going to recommend that off the bat. They may never recommend it. I don't mm-hmm. know. But yeah, for me, it was something that was in the cards, and it was something in my heart of hearts I knew this process has to take place. It's got to be done in the right way. And to a man, every man that told me they had disclosed to their wife told me they wished they had done it in the presence of or with the guidance, at least the guidance of a counselor. But many said they wish they would have done it in the presence of mm-hmm. a professional counselor. So when you get 10 out of 10 men that have all disclosed their wives, all telling you that, that's probably what you need to do. Yeah. So that's what I did. Mm. I so admire you doing it, man. And uh, so, yeah, you're now several months removed from that. Yeah, and it's still fairly fresh, so I'm guarded on what I will, won't share about yeah. that, uh, out of respect for my wife and, and those people closest to me. But but no regrets? No regrets. In fact, it was the best, single best thing I may, might have ever done in my life. Wow. Wow. But you didn't do it alone. I didn't do it alone, um, thank God, because I would have probably screwed it up. And, and no disclosures. There's no perfect way to do it. Yeah. Um, it is going to cause pain, but I think it's a lot like you, you've already done the damage. You've already truly done the damage. Now it's time to take the MRI, see what's wrong so we can fix it, yeah. and, and get the people involved that know how to take an MRI. So describe some of these different roles in your life. I mean, it's, it's no different than in your past sporting life there's the work you have to do and here are the different people that help you know how to do that in your recovery life you talked about having silas you talk about having your group you've got your own work you've got a counselor yeah so what what are the roles i'm sure there's overlap there's a lot of overlaps there's no doubt um i think you know you don't have access to your therapist or counselor every day unless you just want to spend a ton of money (laughs) um or you've watched what about bob one too many times (laughs) yeah i kind of remember that movie not so well um but yeah in terms of like the silas that's someone you can and probably should reach out to every day uh just to keep you kind of your head above the water you know when you know that you are an addict and you know you've got a past history of addiction knowing that there's somebody you can call even when you're sniffing like, hey, this might be a good idea to do this, just in the back, almost in the subconscious when you feel that tickle back there, that's the time to call the Silas. Yeah. And, and you should call them anytime, even after a slip. Uh, but I think that the best time to call a Silas is really early on for them to kind of talk you back off the ledge. Because mm-hmm. um, I think for, for an addict, you think, hey, I'm not even close to the ledge. I'm mm-hmm. not even close. But one of the things I always say at the beginning of every single uh, Samson meeting is I'm always a half day away from, you know, going in the ditch. Yeah. No matter how good I'm doing, you're always a half day away. So you've got to be conscious of that. It keeps you humble and truthful. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Silas, somebody you can reach out to every day. Uh, they're a battle buddy. They've got a struggle of their own. You, you should always be honest with them. You can always be honest with them. But in terms of walking through how to handle uh major major life moments i think they can be a voice but i do think there's somebody that should be there with a professional background in it that's been trained that's walked down this road with other men Mm -hmm. um i asked my counselor many times about his past i wasn't asking him to disclose things he shouldn't Mm -hmm. but i would say hey have you done it like this i was scared you know, this situation sure. that's upcoming, have you walked down this road with the husband and wife in the room and had the husband came out and just said things, just said exactly what it was, and he said yes many times. That gave me a level of comfort. And right. he had had it go both ways. You know, mm-hmm. he'd walked me through, hey, here, here's outcomes, here's scenarios. Um, but he also gives you advice on what is healthiest for your life. You know, if he, he told me a couple days before the disclosure, he said... Um, he said, you know, you can have a good life and a good marriage without this. You can, but it'll never be fully authentic. It'll never be 100% real. And if you desire that for your life, you got to walk this path. And that was all I needed to say because that's what I want. Mm. Hmm. 
Well, Jeremy, uh, I am so grateful for your vulnerability. And uh, also, I really admire how articulate you are, very expressive. It surprises me to hear you describe yourself as somebody who's at all reticent about public speaking because you got a gift, you got a flair, buddy. Well, good grief, Nate. I listen to you and I'm like, how can I ever achieve that? <laughs> I think that the voice day. inflection, the word recall, this man's amazing. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. And, um, and I will see you. Actually, I've got a sister in town who I have, she's the first time in my house in 20 years. Wow. Yeah. We have a little, I don't um, know if that's pretty cool or not a good thing. But. It's great that she's coming. It, it shows uh, the level of uh, family dysfunction. Uh, but she's coming. So for that reason, I will not be at Samson tonight. All Otherwise, right. I, will miss be, you. I would see you at the meeting. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us. Please, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. on the Pirate Monk podcast. Uh, man, how fortunate. There was ex-professional athlete that was in the building. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, you can't swing a dead cat in this town without hitting a former athlete or a musician. And I have swung a dead cat around, <laughs> and I hit three. Okay, there you go. Well, uh, another reason, let's, get, let's come clean. Um, another reason that I really wanted to tackle this subject is because I have been pressing you for a very long time to uh, be a little bit more deliberate and a little more available uh, as a coach. I know you've been doing that for a long time in California. Uh, my good friend David Hampton, with whom uh, I co-host the Positive Sobriety Podcast, is as busy as a one-armed paper hanger uh, coaching. Uh, I'm so stuck now on that metaphor. I don't know what it means. Uh, coaching alcoholics uh, in recovery. Um, and uh, I just know you are gifted in that deal. So I have pressed you to uh, kind of throw your, what, what do you, you throw your hat in, your, in the ring? You throw a towel in the ring? What do you throw in the ring to you say? You throw it? the towel and you quit. So oh, okay. you shouldn't do that yet. Okay. All right. No, I, and the, the shift for me is, uh, being here doing coaching, uh, just focused on the individuals 
whereas before it was very tied into the church and coaching pastors. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, and, and doing recovery and, and relationship coaching. So different than what David does in some ways with yeah. some overlap. Um, but yeah, I, I love coaching. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with one of our favorite uh, podcast guests, Brian Kay, who's mm-hmm. a, a marriage and family therapist and a pastor. And we've spent whole weekends just talking about the difference and overlap between coaching and counseling mm-hmm. and, uh, and and trying to understand that because he's very much a counselor. He's a great counselor. Right. And right. I'm very much a coach and would never want to be a counselor. Yeah. So help me help me uh, see the distinction. How would you describe it? What's the difference between a counselor and a coach? Okay. The, the, the very brief answer. Now I'm going to try to summarize weekends and weekends of conversations. <laughs> uh, but I, I think counselors are, are trained to listen, mm-hmm. to ask questions, um, but be be pretty hands-off with with how they guide people to their ahas or their epiphanies. Right, right, right. Coaches are about strategy, coming up with tools, uh, sometimes pushing back, sometimes listening for sure, sometimes waiting for a person to come to their aha, sometimes kicking them in the butt and being like, you know what, no, you know better. There's a lot more freedom for pushback mm-hmm. with a coach, yeah. which suits me. I, I, man, if I was a counselor, well, I'd lose my license very quickly because I would do a very bad job being that kind you'd, of counselor. You would be too directive. I would be too directive. Mm-hmm. Well, at the same time, I, I do believe in not stealing another man's epiphany. Yes. Um, and and using questions. We've talked about the Quaker clearing. I yeah. love I love watching people come to those moments. Yeah. Um, but I also love the challenge and the setting the goals, being very practical mm-hmm. and being very strategic. And then, you know, being a pastor is being a coach. In fact, at, at the church that I was at for the last 10 years, we didn't use the word pastor. I don't want to get into all of that because it seems to bother people. Uh-huh. Um, but we use the word coach. Yeah. Because when Ephesians talks about what a pastor is, it says God gave some to be, you know, there's five different ones, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. teachers, the evangelists, the pastors. But he says, for the equipping of the saints for ministry. The pastors weren't supposed to do the ministry. They equipped the saints to do the ministry. Right. So the way we always described it is we're the coaches. Yeah. You're on the field, and it's never okay for us to say you're really screwing second base up Get out of the game. I'm playing second base. No coach would ever do that. Right. Sure. 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 So I think the pastoring is at its best coaching, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. it's equipping the individual, and that's what's important as well. With with the recovery piece of this, um, I've really tried to study opposing views. We yeah. talk a lot about the twelve step version of recovery, which is by far the most popular. Mm-hmm. But there are other forms of recovery. Sure. And and I I will always buy a book that in some way says, this is the other version, you yeah, know, yeah. like the up and against. And in the end, it's not up and against. But what it always highlights for me is um, there are there are people who don't call themselves addicts, but know that something in their life isn't helpful, mm-hmm. whether it's porn, whether it's alcohol. And just because they're not at a place they call themselves addicts doesn't necessarily mean they're in denial. Right. But within a 12-step paradigm, if you're not admitting you're an addict, you are in denial. Right. It's just yeah, a black yeah. and white either yeah, or. Yeah, yeah. And again, I'm not against that. I think it's incredibly helpful for so many people to get to that point. Right. Um, but I think coaching is a very individual thing. Where are you at right now? Mm-hmm. And if you don't know if you're an addict and don't want that to be the major first thing, deciding if I am or not, right. that's okay. We can go sure. on the journey for a while. And guess what? Three months from now, you might be in a place where you feel more comfortable to say, all right, now that I'm kind of working through this, yeah. I think I'm an addict. Great. Like It's just a name. It's a designation. Right. What we want is forward movement and we need steps in a process to get there. Sure. That's what coaching is. Yeah. So there's overlap with counseling because we do want to look at at the past. Mm-hmm. Like, why why am I making these decisions? Yeah. Uh, there are so many reasons and so many stories, and that needs to be a part of the process. Yeah. 
And it, it helps us, especially people who are more naturally shameful, to say, okay, look, this isn't the end of the world, and there's a reason I got here. So let's, let's figure this out, and let's start taking some steps out of it. But it's also relationship uh, re- recovery and relationship because I like coaching spouses mm-hmm. uh, of people or parents of kids who are struggling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love the relational part. I love yeah. doing marriage counseling, especially when you can get a husband and a wife to start working on stuff. I mean, that's just fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I imagine you incorporate the insights of soul architecture. It It is really up to the individual how much they want their spiritual journey to be a part of this. Yeah, yeah. I was actually just talking with our, uh, our Murphy's bro, pastor brother Scott last night we had St. Patrick's Day dinner together oh nice Um, and you know we were talking about how you can do recovery with just the the God of your understanding Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to have the gospel in it right and you can take positive steps yeah and that's fine and some people want that that's okay so we can do it I'm always going to be most excited when the gospel is the central fuel Mm -hmm. and power for that sure so people get to decide like uh basically when people sign up for my coaching they're saying i want one uh, up to one to four of these things which is this is for my recovery this is to support somebody else that i love in their journey Mm -hmm. this is for my marriage this is to grow my spirituality Mm -hmm. which is where the soul architecture comes in sure and they put that in order of these these are the most important things to me yeah. And I think at our best, well, I'll say in our crisis, we'll usually put my recovery as most important. Mm-hmm. I just have to get out from under this thing. Yeah. But as we grow, we start to realize, no, when, when my spiritual relationship with my Heavenly Father is most important and when Jesus is enough, then that starts to give me emotional and mental tools I couldn't have when recovery was most important. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Um, That order of operation matters. Yeah, yeah. But we can't fake that. We can't just say, oh, that's a churchy answer. So if recovery is most important to me right now, that needs to be the first thing I deal with. Sure. And we just let it grow. Yeah. But yeah, when when people want, want their relationship with God, their spiritual growth to be a part of it, then... It becomes a whole different thing. Yeah, that's just the most fun. It's all the most fun. I love I love hanging out with people and watching. You get the best seat in the house to watch life change, <laughs> miracles happen. Well, the last time we were together, I asked you to put together a website and step out and make yourself available to the listener of this podcast, the Samson guys, to whoever. You're taking else credit for my website now. I, well, I asked you to set it up. Did you? It's it's set up. Okay. It's there. Where is it? It is at AaronPorterCoaching.com. Okay. AaronPorterCoaching.com. Yes. All right. So somebody could go there and, and see your smiling face and download yeah. some intake stuff or get information or... Yeah. So, I mean, anyone can just email me at Aaron at AaronPorterCoaching.com. Um... But if you go on the website, you'll see a little link that says click here to fill out your basic information. And that'll take you to a page that just gives your basic, this is what I want, this is yeah. what I'm looking for. And then I have a uh, just a free intake meeting people don't have to pay for just to, okay. to have a conversation, say this is what I'm thinking, what is this all about? Okay. Um, I think that's important for people to get to ask their questions and, all right. and figure out the plan is. So yeah. Or if they just want to see the face behind the voice that they've been listening to all these Jeez, years, they, yeah. can, they can just how, do that. How exciting is that? Jenny saw that I put a picture of both of us on. She's uh-huh. like, why'd you put my picture on? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> why do I have to put my picture on? <laughs> so, and, and this is all virtual, by the yeah. way. That's, that's important. Um, for the last probably three years, uh, I've done most coaching virtually mm-hmm. through Zoom, which can be on a Mac, a PC, a phone, an Android, uh, an iPhone. So it's a Zenith television. Yes. You can just uh, connect to that, which is great. Uh, the last year I've done just about all coaching through that. And okay. now I'm going to do it all through that. 
it's so great because if you just have a lunch break, mm-hmm. you can do it on your lunch break. Right. You don't have to drive somewhere and then have an hour. So much more convenient. It is. And it really doesn't take anything away. I mean, you're sitting. I've got a big computer yeah. monitor in front of me. Honestly, people's heads are just about as big as if they're sitting across the table from me. All uh, of my work with my recovery coach, Raman Abedi, has been done through Zoom, and it's been terrific. He can he can read my facial expressions. Uh, I can see him. It, it's as though I'm sitting in his study. So how's that been? Because you've done you've done both. Yeah. Has it been different at all? Um, I suppose I actually like the virtual thing better. Uh, I like not having a travel time. Mm-hmm. It's uh, and we get straight to it in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to wear pants. This is true. Uh, <laughs> no, it's worked out. It really has worked out very well for me. Uh, I'm making. I'm an old guy, but I'm making the. I'm making the technological shift here to virtual meetings. We're doing the same thing, by the way, at our Samson House board meetings. We had the last one virtually, and I thought, holy shoot, why are we spending so much energy trying to get everybody in the same room hmm. when all we have to do is coordinate schedules and we can be in the same virtual room? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the technology scares me for those reasons that mm-hmm. it, it, you know, I don't want to end up sitting across having virtual dinner with people right. someday. Yeah, that wouldn't be good. But... For this purpose, I think it it is amazing. Yeah. And that is interesting to me that you have done the face-to-face therapy Mm -hmm. and coaching and done this and that to you there's there's not a big difference. Right, right. That's really interesting to me. All right. Well, and certainly for some forms of therapy, for EMDR, for neurofeedback, mm-hmm. for stuff like that, you've got to be in the same room. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Neural, neurofeedback would definitely be odd. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Attach the thing to your head. No, not that. <laughs> Move it. Just, oh, this is so frustrating. Well, I hope this conversation has been helpful to our listeners. I hope it sparks uh, more conversation. Uh, you can remember now, you can reach Aaron at Aaron at AaronPorterCoaching.com. You can reach us always at PirateMonkPodcast at gmail.com. Or uh, I think we got a Facebook page still. I mean, something's up there and running. Right. Yeah. So I make sure to add add it to uh, add the podcast to that each each time. So somebody's still out there. Yeah. Yeah. I know Young Master Perry is still liking every single episode. <laughs> All right, and we are going to uh, we are going to get things cranked up here and get. Uh, regular episodes going there's so many more conversations to have so many more people to meet yes we want to hear from you uh questions thoughts i actually saw a question that we had missed uh so we're going to get to that yes on a page from a while ago so send us your questions your thoughts that's super fun i mean what we have to think of stuff to say all the time All right. And by the way, one of the episodes I really want to do quite soon is we've got ladies, uh, wives of Samson guys, Mm. lots of them who are getting together online uh, and uh, for mutual support, sharing wisdom and strength. And we got to get a few of those ladies on here. Yeah. And and we know ladies spy on us with this thing. (laughs) I want to spy on them. (laughs) And we've got some great other uh, 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 guests in the offing. So uh stay with us uh keep keep uh, subscribe to the podcast if you're not subscribed meanwhile please continue to check in and share the podcast with your friends and until next time then i'm nate i'm aaron and we are your pals on the pirate monk podcast all right my love must be a kind of blind love I don't know if it's cloudy or bright